The following message was given at Kingsway Community Church during a special event. Well, we've, we've covered a lot of territory here the last couple of days. There's quite a bit of detail, but I hope you just can at least hold on to just some of the main concepts, just a couple of key phrases. Charitable judgments, that one idea, believing the best about people until you have facts to prove otherwise, would prevent so many conflicts, not only in our families, but even international uh, type things where people just jump to conclusions and wars jump, start up. The whole issue of being humble to receive correction and to be quick to see our own faults, to see what's good in other people. And the the whole issue of idolatry is asking God to make us sensitive to the desires that sometimes rule our hearts, desires that grow into demands that cause us to judge and to punish one another. If we can conquer those idols and cast them down progressively day by day, the freedom we have by worshiping God, what a safe marriage that is being married to a God worshiper. That's the safest place we can be as someone who has a passion for Christ to live out the gospel. In today's session, uh, we have two actually, one breathe grace, the other one on forgiveness. Uh, The one on breathe grace is really one of my favorite talks today because this particular issue has so transformed our family in the last few years. This has been one of the most significant things God has done to us. And I'd like to introduce this concept just with an illustration or a contrast Two months ago, the day after Christmas, several million tons of rock shifted in the Indian Ocean. And a sea wave swept across Southeast Asia into Indonesia and clear across to Indian Africa. And I think the final death toll is somewhere in excess of 125,000 people. A devastating catastrophe. And it'll be years as we rebuild there. But 50 years ago, something that didn't weigh millions of tons actually just weighs a few ounces moved. And 50 million people died. Now think of how powerful those few ounces must be to kill 50 million people. What was it that shifted? It wasn't millions of tons of rock. It was a man's tongue. Adolf Hitler through the power of the tongue, inflamed the entire world in a cataclysmic war, and 50 million people died. Think about that. The power of the tongue to kill 50 million people. Some of you may have seen the the grainy old films of the Nuremberg speech he gave in the early 30s. 30,000 people in the stadium at Nuremberg, Hitler inflaming them with his tongue, his oratory, twisting the truth, rising, um, uh, uh, inflaming people's passions and prejudices, and all those people storming out of the Colosseum, holding their torches high, and World War II was begun. Now, the Bible tells us, it confirms, see, historically, is the tongue is like a spark that sets a whole forest on fire. We see one proverb that says that the tongue has the power of life and death. That is so true. There's so many passages in Scripture, in Proverbs, in James, and many other places that talk about the tongue. One of the most interesting ones to me that God often brings to my mind is Proverbs 12, 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Reckless words pierce like a sword. If if I was standing here and I had a 
a real 45 automatic and I slammed the clip into the to the butt and I pulled the handle back and cocked the trigger and I just started sort of waving it around where the barrel passed across you once more. Would that make you nervous? That's the modern day equivalent of the sword. What this Proverbs is telling us is that the tongue is like someone just throwing a sword around, just waving it around in a crowd, slashing and cutting. In the same way a gun, if I just pointed it around, especially if I pointed it around and just randomly pulled the trigger. The picture is powerful, the power of the tongue to do harm, to hurt, to destroy. Now, most of us would never get into a coliseum and and, uh, try to fan people's passions into flame to actually go out and kill people. We can stand at the kitchen sink and blurt out words to somebody, to a child, to a spouse, that can cut and can wound. There's been some fascinating speculation on what were the words spoken to Adolf Hitler as a little boy in Austria that planted the seeds of hatred and bitterness and resentment that just fermented over those years and eventually came out. What were the words spoken to the two boys down in Columbine years ago that eventually triggered some things in them where they would come to school with guns and shoot classmates? In most of those cases, it was careless words, hurtful words, spiteful words, condemning words that planted a seed and came up and caused damage. It's sobering. We need to realize that our tongues have that same kind of power. James says that no one can tame his tongue. We all have this problem. All of our tongues, as James says, are set on fire by hell itself. Sin corrupts our tongues and our speech so easily. It's a sobering thing, a very sobering thing. And We need to take seriously the power of our tongues for good or for ill. There's something that I've seen over the years called the golden result, um, that I call the golden result. It's a corollary to the golden rule. We've all heard that. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. The golden result is a corollary that says people will usually treat you the way you treat them. Now, we saw that in this humorous little clip from the Dick Van Dyke show that when they got into the conflict and, and Rob started attacking Laura, what did Laura do? She attacked him back. And as she attacked him back, then he attacked her. And just went back and forth as they brought each other to a higher level of attacking and condemning and judging. But in the last scene here where they walk in and one of them speaks a word, it was my fault. No, it was my fault. No, I'll go halvesies with you. Do you see the whole transition, how they reflected off of one another? I've seen that for 25 years, how people will respond that way. When one attacks and accuses and blames, the typical response is for the other one to do the same thing back. When one person says, it's my fault, so often the response that we see is, no, 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 it wasn't all your fault. Here's what I did. And it's a wonderful thing in a mediation session to see two Christian businessmen who've been litigating with each other for years and running up huge legal bills. Suddenly the Lord moves in one man's heart. He begins to confess, and the other one says, now hold on a minute, it's more my fault. Oh, no, no, it's more my fault. No, it's my fault. It's a whole new conflict that develops, and it's been thrilling to me to sit there and watch the attorneys in those cases sort of look at each other, and they're they're, they're realizing they're seeing something they've never seen before. People fighting to take responsibility for a conflict instead of shifting blame. And they know that there's a power moving there, the power of the Spirit. So the good news is from this, this, this uh, golden result concept is that if you want to create a, a spirit and an atmosphere of grace in your home, you can speak it into your home 
And in most cases, your family members will respond. Now, not always. You can have some difficult times, no matter how kind and gentle you are, that there's going to be conflict. But as a general rule, if we speak graciously to other people, they will speak graciously back to us. And especially if we do this over a long period of time, we can, breathe, we can build that, uh, that atmosphere. So the expression I want you to walk away from this morning, from this talk, is the concept of breathing grace. Now, it's based on a passage in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.29, where Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And the word unwholesome there is a word that would have been used to describe spoiled food, food that is no longer fit for use or consumption. It's spoiled food. It says, don't let any un, uh, unwholesome, spoiled words come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. That phrase benefit, it actually means bring grace. Bring grace to those who listen. And I'd like to suggest just a slight variation on that, to breathe grace to those who listen. And the reason I like that expression is breathe grace has several connotations to it. One is it reminds us that the main way we communicate grace or condemnation to people is through our words. We breathe them out. We speak them out through our tongue. That's the main way we communicate and relate to people is with words. That's why they have such power. It also reminds us that our, our speech and what we say to people often is done as thoughtlessly, as automatically as breathing. I don't sit here and say, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. I just do it without thinking. And that's often how we talk. We, without thinking, just say a little word. And we don't think how that might cut and hurt and demean somebody. So it reminds us. But the other thing that I like about the phrase breathing grace is it has the connotation that you have to breathe in before you breathe out. The key to breathing grace to one another is that we need to breathe in the grace of God before we can breathe it out to others. We'll talk about this whole breathe in, breathe out concept, but I want to put a little bit of substance on this first of all to contrast a tendency most of us would have just because of sinful nature, selfishness, self-righteousness is to breathe judgment, that we'd be quick to find fault, quick to stab, quick to criticize, that those words just would roll off our tongue very naturally. And what we want to do is say, God, change my heart. Change my heart. Because the Lord warns us it's out of the heart that words come. So he needs to transform our heart to fill it with the love of Christ, the grace, the mercy, the kindness of Christ, and transform us inside that what comes out of our mouth would be grace instead of judgment. And let me give you just a few ways that you can think of this, some practical ways you can think of breathing grace. One of the most important ways is the idea of bringing hope to people through the gospel. Um, I've discovered progressively over time, I'm still learning this, how much my tendency, both as a, as a human being, a fallen human being, as a man, and as an attorney, uh, can be to come and naturally uh, point out people's faults, to bring uh, standards to them, to bring the law to them, and say, don't you realize this is what you should do, this is where you've fallen short, and here's what you better do to change. And I would call that bringing law, standards that people should live up to. And what God has been teaching me and Corlett, and, and now it's filtering down to our children, is asking God, say, Lord, transform us, that our natural inclination is not to come to each other with all the shoulds. You should do this, you should do that, you didn't do this, you better do this, here's what's going to happen if you don't do this. 
But instead, Lord, help us to come to each other first and foremost with the gospel. And I define that term in a very broad sense. What I mean by gospel is not just John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, but the broad, the whole broad context of everything that's in Scripture about who God is, what he's like, and what he's doing. I'm using gospel in its broadest sense. If you, if you use law and gospel in those two very broad senses, you can basically put everything in the Bible under one category. It either Scripture either focuses on what we should do or on what God is like and what he is doing. And what I found is that we have a strong tendency to come to each other very naturally with the shoulds. And I saw this most immediately with my children. I realized, boy, I can come to my kids so quickly. Now, Jeff, didn't I tell you this? And you know what's going to happen to you now. You better get back in line. And it often even has me standing here hovering over him with my finger pointing at him, I mean, to emphasize the point. That's a sure sign we're bringing the law when we're wagging our finger at our kids. And I, I just began to sense this is not the most effective way to minister to my children. And what I realized was I, I was I was lacking a major part of spiritual nurturing to my kids to bring the gospel to them. Now, let me give you a very concrete example of, uh, of a time I did that. Uh, we were having some tension in our family. My daughter, Megan, was having just a real bad day. She was making life difficult, trying to control her brother. That created friction between them. That irritated their mom. The waves finally came up to me. And so I came downstairs and I intervened. I took my daughter into the, the guest bedroom, also known as the dungeon. It's, uh, <laughs> it's where much torture is inflicted, at least our, our kids think so. And I, I walked in there and I was about to launch into my typical lecture uh, about not controlling, about the sinful heart and all these things. And my daughter had walked in front of me and she was about... Uh, 12 at the time, and she walked in, she laid down on the floor, she had her head up against the nightstand, her arms were crossed, her whole body was just sort of rigid, all the force fields were up, she was expecting the standard lecture and some discipline. And I looked at her for a minute, and the Lord just graciously intervened in my heart and moved me to take a very different course of action with her. And it really was a work of the Spirit, because it wasn't a planned, premeditated thing. But I looked at Megan for a minute, and I said, Megan, if Jesus was here right now, what would he say to you? She looked at me and she said, quit controlling your brother. <laughs> she'd, heard the, she'd heard the lecture many times. And I said, honey, you know, he, he, he might eventually get around to that. But before he would do that, I think what Jesus would say to you is, Megan, I love you. I love you so much that I went up on a cross 2,000 years ago and died for all of your sins, including the ones you've committed in the last 30 minutes. All of those sins have been paid for, washed away, forgiven. And Megan, I love you so much, I want to come into your life and change your heart so that controlling your brother is no longer the thing that you want to do that gives you joy. You'll find something so much better. And that thing that's better is knowing my love for you and my purpose for you. Honey, I want to come in and transform you and make you like me and fill you with mercy and love and grace and open your eyes to see all the good things in your life that you would overflow with joy in me. And I went on for about five minutes just paraphrasing the promises of God. Instead of focusing on the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, 
I focused on who God is and what he's like and what he's doing. And as I, I talked to her, I watched her body change, her body language, the stiffness and the rigidity with her arms crossed, her arms relaxed, her body relaxed. I could see her face softening. It was just amazing, the transformation going on in her. And at the end of about five minutes, just paraphrasing all the promises of God's love, the promises of the gospel of Christ to her, I said, now, Megan, one more thing I want to say, and this is for me. Honey, I love you. At that point, she just got up off the floor. She came over, laid down with her head on my lap and said, oh, Daddy, I'm having such a hard day. Sin is just gripping my heart. And she just began to confess. I didn't have to bring a word of correction to her. Now, I am not saying I have never had to bring a word of correction since then. Sometimes, yes, you still have to bring the law. It's a God's standard for how we can live to please him, and it's something we can look to. But what I found is I've reduced the amount of time I dwell on that probably by 90% with my kids by focusing on the gospel. Now, this isn't something unique. We, we see this in God's word, and it's just starting to jump out of the Bible at me, something I've been missing all these years. If you have your Bible, look at John 4. If you don't, don't worry about it. But if you, if you happen to have it, you might look there at John 4. This is fascinating to me. Jesus comes to the well in Samaria, and the Samaritan woman comes up. A woman who's a serial adulteress. This is a very sinful woman. The Son of God, the perfect Son of God, is sitting there with her. There's no need for him to get the log out of his own eye. He doesn't have any preparatory work he has to do. He could launch right in to holding up the standard of God's law to her and judging her. He could rightfully do that. And yet, as you look at his words here, that's not what he jumps into. In fact, I just got curious with this. I, I Xerox copied this section. I got two colored markers out, and I, I marked all of Jesus' words in two colors. I, with one color, I marked the words where he focused on what she should do and what she was doing wrong, the, the shoulds, the law-type things. And with the other color, I focused on Jesus talking about the Father, who the Father is and what he's like and what he's up to. Now, I don't know what it is in the, in the Greek, but in the NIV, English, it's a four-to-one ratio. He spends four times, uh, four times more focusing on God than he does on this woman and her sin. That's a sobering ratio, especially when you think of how easily when we were in a conflict, man, we jump right in and start talking about all the shoulds that people should do, haven't done, better do, bringing up things from the past, the failures, all the violations. And I was convicted by this. I said, Lord, help me just get down to a 50-50 ratio. It'd be a step in the right, right direction. And so as we've, if we've, as we've interacted with our kids, this is where Corlett and I both began to see it the most vividly with our children. And part of the reason we, we discovered as parents why it's so easy to come to our children with the law is the law gives you quick results. Two kids squabbling and fighting. You can intervene right away. Now, you stop that young man. If you keep doing this, this is what's going to happen to you. And that's really the purpose of the law, to restrain sin. It's one of the purposes, restrain sin. So it's very easy for parents to just quickly resort to the law. But what I noticed was I can bring the law to my son, say, stop doing that to your sister. He'll stop. I'll turn my back, and he starts again. Because you see, the law doesn't change people. The law doesn't transform people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what transforms people. 
But the other reason that we find a hard time, I think, naturally bringing the gospel is it takes time. It's like planting a seed. It's a lot easier to go to the grocery store and buy a loaf of bread than it is to go out into a field and plant a seed and water it and wait and water it and wait. And that's what transforming the human heart is like. It takes time. Seeds are planted. They're nurtured. They grow slowly. And so it's really easy to want the quick results because if I can quickly get the kids to stop fighting, then I get back the peace and quiet I want. My life is convenient. And so there's a lot of things driving us toward being law speakers, not to mention just the sinful tendency to want to play God. Let me give you another example where where we see this, this beautiful act of, first of all, bringing the gospel. Turn to 1 Corinthians, if you would. Now, 1 Corinthians has to be one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament. It, it, uh, it, it merited two letters, and these letters are largely corrective letters. These churches had every kind of conflict you can imagine, uh, just incest and lawsuits and, and uh, feasts and orgies around the Lord's table and divisions, you name it. These people were having all sorts of conflicts. I think most people, if they looked at church like this, they would just say, man, you guys are so messed up. I'm not going to waste time on you anymore. You ought to just die. We'll start a new church somewhere else in town. <laughs> be easy with a church this messed up. And yet when Paul writes to this church in his first letter, listen how he begins to this messed up, fighting, divided, conflicted, Poor witness church, here's what he says in in chapter 1, verse 4. I always thank God for you. Think of coming to your child in the middle of a huge conflict. He's just done something really bad or he's wrecked the car or he's done something terrible. I come to him and said, Johnny, I always thank God for you. What a way to start correction. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Isn't that marvelous? He's talking about God's grace to them and God's faithfulness and God's plans to them. It's just amazing. And you see this echo throughout Scripture. In in Colossians, Paul is is trying to teach them to grow and to be forgiving and pure and righteous. But before he launches into the things they should do, the law, Colossians 3.12, he starts off with this expression, as God's chosen people, holy, and dearly loved, put on. And then he describes these attributes to grow. He starts, first of all, with their identity in Christ. That's the foundation for change. It's who we are in Christ that we need to continually remind ourselves of. And so as we, as we remember God's promises, as we remember who he is and what he's like and what he's doing, and emphasize that primarily, it's amazing how it transforms our families. Now, I can still remember vividly the day that Corlett and I were talking about this, and we were starting to see incredible changes in our children. I mean, just their receptivity to correction, their their willingness to confess instead of having to be disciplined and, and forced into confessions they didn't really mean, just the openness. What we saw was by creating an atmosphere that was just 
saturated with the gospel, it created a safe environment where the hope of forgiveness and restoration was so evident that you knew that if you confessed it, the forgiveness was there. It was waiting for you. And often as we would talk to the kids, we would actually hold out our hands like we're holding a gift to them. Instead of the shaking finger of the law, we'd actually hold out and say, Jeff, God's offering you right now his forgiveness. Right now, his restoration, it's here. He bought it for you. He paid for it. It's yours. And his word says that if you conceal your sins, you won't prosper. You won't have it. But if you confess and renounce them, right now, it's yours. It's safe to confess when the gift is right there being held right in front of you. It's so transforming. And one day, Corlette and I were talking about this, and she was so encouraging. She said, she said, Ken, this has been so great. I see the change in the kids. They're just starting to grow in some wonderful ways. I love how you bring the gospel to them. Then she paused, and she said, could you bring the gospel to me more? And, oh, boy, I was convicted. I, I was seeing it clearly the need to go to my children, and yet I realized how often with Corlette, And she with me, we still had this tendency to come and quickly point out, now you're not doing this right. You said you're going to do this. I thought you're going to change this. You're still doing this. And bring the law to each other and find fault and point out the areas we needed to grow. Now, there's a a place for that loving correction. But what we found over the last several months now is as as we even permeate that discussion more with the gospel, how much easier it is to receive from each other the loving correction and spurring on to Christ-like growth. One thing that's been changed in me because of this, this insight, I, I really love scripture memory work. And um, I, I, I looked at my whole box of scripture cards that I memorized, and I realized how many of those cards are thou shalt cards. They're the law cards. And over the last probably couple of years, there's been a real transformation of my memory verses is I'm committing to memory much more gospel the promises of God, the wonderful nurturing promise of God that I can bring to my family, that they're, I don't have to open a Bible, I can actually paraphrase. Even if I don't have them word perfect at times, I can paraphrase to my family. A while ago, my son was really struggling with, with some struggles. He'd been in a conflict with his mom. He was hurt. He was feeling sorry for himself. He was discouraged. And he said, Dad, I'll never change. Mommy will always be unhappy with me and all this self-pity. And I sat there with him, and I, and I just I recalled a, a passage from Ezekiel. I said, Jeff, you've got a sure promise from God. God says he will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. He will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. He will give you a heart and put a new spirit in you. In fact, he's promising to remove from you your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. And I went on to talk about passages from Ephesians and Colossians. He wants to make you an imitator. God works all these things for good to conform you to the likeness of his son. And what my family is hearing from me is a lot less, you know, Bible says you should honor your parents, and a lot more, It's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
It's really had a transforming effect. And it's even spilled over into my mediation work. I, I do a lot of mediation, and I was working with some, some church leaders one time, and they were having a big conflict. The, the elders in a church and a pastor had had a major falling out. This has been going on for over a year, and it was just a bitter dispute. These were all very biblically astute men, and I had a file about a half inch thick, over 100 pages of paper, of emails and letters, detailed letters, pointing out the other side's fault, many scripture quotations and citations, probably at least 300 specific scripture citations. And I sat with them in one meeting, listening to them talk to each other, and it suddenly dawned on me, in this entire file and in this entire three-hour conversation, I hadn't heard one word gospel. It was all condemnation. It was all holding up standards that someone else had violated, things that they needed to change they better get right. And it, they were just locked in this conflict. And I, I finally, the Lord just prompted me to, it just became very clear what was going on. And I, I interrupted them and I said, gentlemen, let me ask you a question. Think about it, this file of letters, this goes back almost a year. The conversation been going on for three hours now. Let me ask you a question, just one. I want you to think about it. How would this file be different? What would be different in this file or different in the words you've spoken if in fact Jesus Christ never went up on a cross and died for our sins. Remove the gospel of Christ from our lives, strip it out, and then tell me what effect that would have made on you guys in this this conflict so far. It took them a while to understand what I was asking them. Basically, what they realized, there's not a word that would have changed in the file. There's not a word they would have spoken differently because the gospel had been utterly void from this conflict. What Christ had done on the cross was playing no role whatsoever in how they were treating each other. And one of the men started to cry. And then another man started to cry. They had left Jesus out of this conflict. They left him out. And that realization softened their hearts and began to change the way they dealt with each other. See, when we're in a conflict with another Christian, the thing that's radically different is all the things that person has done wrong that have hurt us, have frustrated us, that can make us mad and we still want somehow to judge them, the fact of the matter is all of those wrongs have been paid for. We're fighting over a debt that's already been paid. And we forget that. We're still trying to extract payment from somebody. And if we can see that it's paid, it's not the issue so much of them repaying the debt as it is for both of us seeing the Redeemer, the debt payer, and how he wants us to change from this point forward and go forward in a new freedom and a new godliness. That's the point of law, is not to condemn, but to show us how God wants us to live lives that are pleasing to him, out of love for him, not standards by which we condemn each other. And so I just encourage you, as you as you bring... As you, as you engage in a conflict with your children, with your spouse, with a friend, ask God, say, Lord, above all else, help me to bring the hope of the gospel of Christ into this situation. One, one other example for you men. Um, probably four to six weeks ago, I forget, last six weeks, Corlett was really struggling with something in her life. I don't remember what it was. She was just discouraged. And my wife is just an incredibly conscientious person. And that conscientiousness can sometimes be her enemy. She can just be very hard on herself. 
And I don't, I can't remember what it was, but she was discouraged. I could tell she was down. And in the past, what I always try to do is talk her out of this and say, now, that's not the way it is. That's not reality. I would try to bring my engineering and legal reasoning to bear. And it just didn't have an impact. And so I said, let's go to bed. And we crawled into bed and I wrapped my arms around her. And for one hour, by God's grace, he just brought scripture after scripture. We laid there in, in, in the dark and I just held her and I just spoke the promises of God to her for over an hour. And she just cried for a long part of that. She was just crying. But it was a significant time of ministry. And the next day she woke up and the sun came out and God had just lifted her spirits. But it was the word gently being spoken to her of God's promises and his love. And if God went to all the trouble of writing all those glorious promises in his word, he wants them there for us to use with each other. He wants them there to use. And we now see with our kids even, they say, Daddy, thank you for bringing the gospel to me. They're, they're aware of this concept. We're trying to get them to bring the gospel to each other. So they're aware of this, and they will say, thank you for bringing the gospel to me, Daddy. And we will say this to each other. Corlette, thank you for bringing the gospel to me. You know, one of the sad things about the church today is we too often think of the gospel as a door, like on this side of the room. It's something we, we come through to get into the, into the church and this life, and then we go out through that door on the other side of the room into heaven someday. But in the room, we're, we're living with the law and works. And we need to realize the gospel is the air we breathe every minute of every day. We need to bring the gospel to each other again and again and again. Now, one other way to breathe grace to each other, I'm just going to give you a couple of variations on this issue of breathing grace, is to talk from beside somebody, not from above. And what I mean by that is as we minister to one another, especially in our marriages, is to always realize that the ground is perfectly level at the foot of the cross. There's not a set of steps down there, and I'm four steps up, and he's two steps up, and someone else is seven steps up. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so we talk to one another to ask God to give us the humility to see that we too struggle with sin day by day. Now, we may not be caught in this particular sin at this particular moment, that we're having to correct somebody perhaps, but we still need to see ourselves as people who are in need of God's grace every minute of the day. And I think of, of uh, Romans 7, 14 through 19, passage where Paul talks about his own struggles. The things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I still struggle with. You can see Paul is right there standing on the same level of the ground as we are. Better yet, kneeling there before the cross at the same level we are. And so as we come to somebody is to avoid that tone of voice, that look in our eye, that attitude where we're looking down on them and judging someone and correcting them and lecturing them with a sense of superiority. And so even, even with, with my kids, for example, when I talk to them, I'll say, Jeff, I struggle with pride too. If, he, if he, I'm talking to Jeff about pride, he and I, this has been part of our fellowship and accountability with each other. We're, we're holding each other accountable for praying and memorizing scripture and, and encouraging each other to grow in humility, to put off pride. And Jeff and I see ourselves at the same level there, wrestling with these issues. And we try to do the same thing with Megan, is we're not above you. We may be a little bit older than you. We may have learned a few more things. But in terms of our, our righteousness before God, it's the same ground you have. Our righteousness is completely in Christ, not in our works. So to always have that attitude when you come to somebody, it's so much easier to receive correction from somebody who is not speaking in a superior tone. 
Another uh, element of breathing grace to people is to, um, is to engage rather than declare. And what I mean by that is that it's, again, a tendency to come and declare people's wrongs to them, make declarations, like a judge sitting on his bench pronouncing judgment. And we, we can do that so easily if we're not carefully watching our words. People just feel like we're lecturing them, declaring them, attacking them. And we need to be more like Nathan in uh, First Samuel or Second Samuel 12, where he's coming to David. Here's the prophet coming to the king who has committed murder and adultery. And Nathan could have, as a prophet of the king sent by the Lord, a prophet of the Lord sent by the Lord, he could have walked in there and just pronounced judgment. But he was so wise, he understood human nature. God has made us in certain ways, and he knows that people don't like to be declared to. And so he comes in, he says, oh, King David, righteous judge, former shepherd. (laughs) He doesn't say those things, but he's got all those things in mind. David was a shepherd. David prided himself on being a righteous judge. And so he tells the story about the man who had the little ewe lamb. And his neighbor had a whole big flock, but when company came, he snuck across the fence and took the little ewe lamb and slaughtered it and fed it to his friends. He understood David's heart, that David was a shepherd. The idea of someone stealing a little lamb was a real offense. Stealing it when he had a bunch of sheep, that was twice as bad. And the injustice of it was three times as bad. He, he understood everything in David's heart. He knew what would get past his defensive shields and touch him deeply. And David then condemned himself. He said, the man who did this deserves to die. The discussion was essentially over. All Nathan had to say is, it's you. And David didn't argue one word. He immediately confessed his sin. So we need to have that same creativity. We need to pray to the Lord and say, God, as I go to approach my spouse, how do I touch my husband's heart? What's What's significant to him? What's a concept? What's a metaphor? What's a picture I can bring to him that would get through to him? Ladies, for some of you, it may mean learning a little bit about sports. So you can use some sports metaphors. <laughs> and if, if you use them wrong, just the humor might be very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> that can break, break some of the, the tension. But we, we need to find ways to communicate in a way that's meaningful to the other person. See, we tend to communicate with metaphors and analogies that are meaningful to us. I will use war metaphors with my wife. I'm, I love war books, and I found that really doesn't quite connect with Coraline. <laughs> you see, sweetie, it's like a T-134 tank coming down. <laughs> she doesn't know what a T-134 tank is. So I found I've got to use metaphors that mean something to her, and she's learning to use metaphors and analogies that are meaningful to me. And that takes work. It takes prayer. It takes thinking. But the good thing about that is if you, if you practice thinking about those conversations beforehand and don't just sort of walk in and blurt things out, just even that thoughtfulness is probably going to help you quite a bit in this. Now, the final thing I just want to emphasize is the idea that you can't breathe out what you're not breathing in. Um, Our family, this phrase, breathe grace, has become the Sandy family motto. We found we can load just about every concept that's significant to us under this. Breathe grace. Breathe grace. We even have a little signal to each other that if if I'm engaged with the kids and I'm getting a little bit stern with them and Corlette's standing off to the side, she's watching me, and she'll try to catch my eye, and then she'll just tap her lips like this, and that's a signal. Breathe grace. Breathe grace. 
It's a, it's a check to me to soften my voice, to get back in the right focus, to come with the gospel instead of all the, the lecturing. So our, our family, even our children, we see them up, we hear them upstairs, they're speaking sharply. We just go, Megan, breathe grace, honey, breathe grace. And we've loaded a lot of teaching and a lot of concepts under those two words that the kids are starting to think of more often. And one of those concepts is you cannot breathe out what you're, what you're breathing, what you're not breathing in. Now, I want you all to do a little exercise with me for a minute. I want you all to take a deep breath and hold it as long as you can. Ready? One, two, three. Take it in. People are passing out in the back. <laughs> okay, we might go on for a couple minutes there, some of us, but pretty soon you'll start hearing this. You can't take one deep breath in the morning and hold it all day. You certainly can't take one deep breath on Sunday morning and hold it till next Sunday. And yet spiritually, that's what many people try to do. They go to church on Sunday morning, they hear their sermon, they take their deep breath, and they think that spiritually they're set for the week. Or maybe they're more spiritual, they get up and spend 10 minutes in God's Word, take a breath of God's Word on Monday morning and think they can hold that all day. You just can't do it. And we can no more... Breathe in air in the morning and, and hold it there and, and be content at midnight. Then we can then we can uh, think we could be spiritually set all day by not bringing our hearts and our minds back to God throughout the day. Now I'm not saying you've got a Bible in front of you reading all day. I'm saying is you practice the spiritual disciplines so that they're woven throughout your life. Yes, corporate worship on Sunday should be the big breath of the week. It's like catching your breath. I look forward to Sunday morning all week long as a time of that spiritual infusion and the fellowship of the saints. But then every day I try to be in God's word early in the morning. I need that in the morning to get my mind focused properly. But then throughout the day, there's other ways we can be in God's grace. One is by meditating on his word. If you've committed it to memory, or you just know some general phrases, even if not letter perfect, those concepts can come to your mind. You can meditate on those things. That's what the Bible says repeatedly. Meditate on his word day and night. Even as you look out and see the world around you, you can see things. Oh, God, you're the one who made the birds of the air. I see that flock of geese flying across. Who taught them to fly in a V? How did they learn aerodynamics? Oh, God, you're marvelous. We see a flower and the petal and all these things going, how they reproduce. And for just a moment, we, we worship. My son and I were down in Orlando uh, in January and going, we were at Disney World. And as we went around through the whole day at, at um, Magic Kingdom, uh, which is really, in some ways, people just think sort of a testimony to the creativity of men. There's, there's very little that overtly honors God there. And yet here's two people going around Disneyland all day praising God. Jeff, do you see how the engineers designed this thing and it's safe and they've got all the right support here? That's because God helped them to understand materials and math and things like that. The whole day, Jeff and I were interacting, talking about that Magic Kingdom is a testimony to the glory of God. You see, we can weave God into everything because he's already there. We don't have, we don't have to bring him there. He's there if we just open our eyes to see. And so talking to one another, praying throughout the day. Uh, I, I'm still working to develop the habit of, of trying to pray for each conversation I have. I'm going to pick up the phone and say, Lord, as I, as I call and talk to Bob, give me grace to really listen to him, understand what's on his mind. That doesn't take five seconds to just consciously bring my mind back that this is a God conversation, not a Ken conversation. So to practice those ways of just going, 
breathing in and out. We can also get secondhand grace. We hear about secondhand smoke from cigarettes. Secondhand grace is being around other believers, hearing conversations of other Christians, hearing their words administer to us. Uh, we try at our home as we, as we get up in the morning and share devotions to have the children and, and both Corlette and me to share what do we hear in God's word this morning? What's the Lord speaking to us? I'm amazed how often my children grace to me. They breathe insights from God's word and I breathe it in. It fills my soul. It's a way to, to fill my soul. And again, the whole issue of scripture memory, I just encourage you, if you're not doing memory work, it's one of the most beautiful, wonderful, life-changing disciplines you can get. And I know for a lot of people, it's because they have a hard time developing a system for regularly reviewing what they memorize. If that's your, if that's your concern, go to our website in the article section. There's an article there called Scripture Memory or Hiding God's Word in Your Heart. Just a real, real effective system where you could memorize hundreds of scriptures and regularly review them once a week or once a month, depending on how well ingrained they are. And you can just go back over them and keep them heavily implanted in your mind. And you can think of Scripture memory as it's like an air pack that a fireman uses when he goes into a building. It's fresh air that he takes in with him into a dangerous situation that he can draw as he takes a breath out of that air. As you go out into the world, into the workplace, into the neighborhoods where there's a lot of sin and unbiblical thinking, that scripture memory is something that you can breathe in and then breathe out to people. Lots of ways to do that. So those are many things we can do to, to bring God's grace into our lives. And when, you, when you're interacting, especially with your spouse, everything we've talked about so far in this seminar, and even the next section, last one, is all encompassed under this concept, breathe grace. And just as you're going into a conversation with your spouse, for example, on some delicate issue, say, Lord, help me to breathe grace. And when you say that word, the first thing you're going to think, Lord, I can't breathe grace to her if I haven't breathed your grace in first. I need some time in prayer before I start this conversation. I need to go back to that passage in Ephesians and meditate on 429 for a few minutes. It reminds us to draw more, more deliberately on God's grace and as we go and speak it to other people. And I, I just want to encourage you, finally, two things. It does take time. Grace, the gospel, doesn't transform people immediately. It takes time to transform people's lives, to change them. But I can tell you today, our family, has. there's nothing that has so dramatically, significantly, noticeably affected our marriage or our children than this concept of breathing grace, and especially in the form of bringing the gospel to one another. It's just, it is just life-changing. So I share that with you. I offer to you the family motto. If you want to make it yours, it's yours for the taking, to breathe grace to breathe grace to one another, to do that. Now, what I'd like to do um, at this point is we're going to take just a few minutes to talk with each other, uh, with your spouse. I want you to just have a little conversation with your spouse and describe specifically something your spouse does that breathes grace to you, a form of encouragement, a word of, of uh, God's word to you, whatever it is. Think of something where your spouse has breathed grace. Bring a word of encouragement first, as, as we in, engage this discussion. And secondly, is to ask your spouse, what two or three things could I do that would breathe grace to you more effectively? Is there an area? I've mentioned some things right now today, some areas that uh, are possibilities. You can probably think of some others. So take a few minutes just to engage each other, and then I'll bring us all back together again in a few moments. We'll share as a, as a room, and then we'll close for our break.
time or Corlett and I will be up here just to take questions from you on some of these issues. You can actually say, do you guys really do those things? You can find out from Corlett if this is all true. So <laughs> she's, she's going to share a quick word, and then I have just a thought for you, and then we'll take our break. Not long ago, my son Jeff told me that he'd much rather have his dad um, discipline him because his dad always breathed grace to him and shared the gospel with him. And he said, Mommy, um, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but you judge me a lot. And my heart just broke. And I thought, Jeff, honey, you are so right. And I, I really asked God, to, to come and to change me because I, I, was, I was breathing judgment. Um, he was afraid of me when he did something wrong and I would bring correction. He was, he was pretty certain he was going to get um, criticized in an unkind and an unloving way. And I was that person hovering over him, shaking my finger. And so not long ago, probably about three weeks ago, um, I was teaching in our homeschool co-op, and Jeff was in the front row, and he was fidgeting with things. And, and, and Jeff was one who can read a book, watch, a TV, watch TV, and listen to a tape and know what's going on in all three things. You know, he comprehends it all. And so he can fidget, and he can still listen and learn. But, but that particular morning, he had spilled a whole um, jar of red juice all over the table. And it went on his friend's notebook on one side and on his papers and on his friend's notebook on the other side. And he just made a mess. And everything, this right in the middle of the grammar lesson. And I'm just going, <gasps> I was so frustrated. And I said, Jeff, you and I need to talk in the back of the room. Without, my daughter got up and got some towels from the kitchen and came out and was wiping it up while I took Jeff back to the, to the back of the room. And, and on the way, I remembered him say, Mommy, I like it when Daddy talks to me because he breathes grace to me. And I said, Jesus, please help me. Please help me at this moment to breathe grace to my son and to correct him in the way that you correct me and in the way that Ken corrects him. So we got back to the back of the room, and I said, Honey, I just want you to know how much I appreciate the times that, that you are listening. And you are such a good example to these other kids in this classroom. And, and you sit there and you pay attention. And all those times that you have done that, I want you to know I appreciate that. And I know that that's God working in you because you're energetic, you like to move, you like to be doing things. And to sit there in the class and really focus on me as I'm teaching grammar is a real blessing to me. And I thank you. And I said it's an honor to the Lord because you are doing uh, all for the glory of God when you're sitting there doing that. And I said this was just a mistake. This, this was something that was just an accident, and I'm not angry with you, and I love you. And I just want you to know that, that when we go back, I just appreciate it if you would try to really focus and a good example to the rest of the kids. And when we were going back there, walking back, I could just tell Jeff's little body was tense and rigid, and he was on the defense. He was just going to fold his arm, give me all kinds of reasons why he was right and I was wrong. But as we got back there and... and and I was able to, by God's grace, do that. That is not me. That was the Lord. But as I was able to do that, um, Jeff just softened. And he said, Mommy, I'm really sorry. He said, I know that this made it hard for you to teach. And we had to stop and, and not um, 
you know, you didn't get to finish your lesson right away. And, and I'm sorry that I, I messed up Jackson and Adam's books. And, and he said, I want to go back and apologize to them. He went back and apologized to the whole little group of kids. And he said, I'm sorry that I disrupted the class. And, and I, I'm sorry that I messed up your books. And, and will you please forgive me? And that was evidence of God's grace. That was a change because of the Holy Spirit working in, in my heart through can obviously, but, but first of all, through the Holy Spirit. And so I commend to you um, the scriptures. I commend to you change, because change can happen. I appreciated what someone was saying this morning uh, during our worship time, that if you're afraid that we're locked into patterns and we can never change, um, that's just the enemy trying to convince us that that will happen. But in Christ, change is only a breath away. It's only a prayer away. And we are able to breathe grace because he's breathed grace to us. Thank you. Good. Thank you, honey. The irony, or rather just a thing to emphasize the power of words, when Carla was saying how Jeff said he'd rather be disciplined by me, uh, Megan has said the same thing. And the interesting thing is there, I'm the only one in the family who spanks anymore. And uh, I spank, and when I spank, I spank hard. And I asked Jeff when I, he said he'd rather be disciplined by me, I said, yeah, but I spank, and I spank hard. He said, Daddy, that's okay. It's the hard words that hurt the most. Isn't that something? Now, I, I do want to add one other caveat, though. Don't get the impression that we're saying that we don't discipline, that we don't bring correction. There's times when kids do have to be sternly corrected and pointed, things pointed out to them, um, especially as little children. There may be times we have to do that. But part of the maturing process, part of what we should be looking for in our children is a maturing that when we create an environment that's safe to confess, that more and more they would bring that confession forth without us having to squeeze it out of them through a lecture. And as they get older, they get into 10, 11, 12, those ages, we should certainly be seeing it. I think our kids were slower in some ways because Corlett and I didn't learn this lesson until recently. But we're now seeing God's graciously allowing them to catch up on it. So I just I commend it to you. We're going to have a break here in a minute. Before we do, I just want to give one other word of um, encouragement on some resources. I know we sold out on the Judging Others booklet yesterday because I, I mentioned it was uh, the essence of the talk I gave the opening night. But there's, there's several other booklets out there that I would really encourage you um, to look at and possibly even just to take one of each of these home. But we're developing this Culture Peace series is little bite-sized pieces of key concepts that have two benefits. One, that we can read them quickly and learn some, some key specific concept ourselves. But then secondly, we have them at home or, or handy that if we're talking to a friend who's wrestling with this issue of, of, of judging others or uh, un, ungodly uh, conversations with people, um, problems in the workplace. A lot of us will talk to people who have difficulty with employers or coworkers, things like that. Uh, the, the, book, the booklet Words That Cut is one my pastor wrote. It's an excellent booklet on just how to receive correction. And I, I go back to it again and again myself. Um, this is not something I do naturally. I resist. I tend to get defensive. And so this is a great booklet for me to review periodically to remind myself that a wise man receives correction, receives rebuke. Uh, men, I would encourage you particularly. It's often us men who will wrestle with this issue of receiving correction and pride. So I would encourage you to look at those. And the other thing is I, I know there's still quite a few young peacemaker sets out there. Uh, men, if you want to create a safe environment for your wife, who many of your cases is home all day with the kids, get the young peacemaker and teach your children. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give to your wife 
is to periodically be teaching your children peacemaking skills so as mom is with those kids much of the day, in many cases, uh, they're going to be resolving conflict in a way that's not wearing her down. The benefit of that is a little bit of self-interest here is if the kids are resolving their conflicts on their own and making peace on their own, they're not sapping all the energy from mom. And when you come home in the evening, you might more often find this smiling, friendly, affectionate wife. And things can go a lot better in the evening if you have that kind of situation. So there's some good things that flow from teaching children peacemaking, believe me. Let's let's take a 30-minute break. Um, we'll come back at 11.30, Gene, is that right? The next session we're going to shorten just a bit. So, And then at the end of the next session, we'll have some time for Q&A with Corlett and me. Thank you. You have been listening to a message given at Kingsway Community Church. Kingsway is located in Midlothian, Virginia, and exists to glorify God by knowing, applying, and proclaiming.